And welcome on this Saturday morning. It's time for Green Thumb from Hair Nursery. Green Thumb heard every Saturday at 7 o'clock. Grab your cup of coffee. I'm Dan DiOrio along with Ethan Wise of Hair Nursery. Hey, we I, I want to start out uh, first thing with a shout-out to uh, Mr. Bonsai. Yes. Yeah, Curtis, if you're if you're listening, uh, I told you I'd, I told you I'd say something about you on, on the uh, radio only because he held me at sword point mm-hmm. um, and uh, and threatened me violently. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's plenty of witnesses who can attest. So this is kind of yeah. my on air call for help. Uh, no, just, just kidding, Curtis. Uh, no, he's a very interesting um, person. And uh, um, he he is a prominent figure in the world of bonsai. Here in the Midwest, he came in and uh, asked me for some uh, some help, so, uh, some questions in Container Cove, which is where we sell house plants, and I can be found sometimes frequently um, walking through. Those are those are my plants. Those are the ones I talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, and he started asking me questions, uh, only to dupe me because the guy was plenty knowledgeable on plants himself, um, and uh, just kind of a very interesting person with a lot of bonsai knowledge. He, he schooled me and educated me some because bonsai is a is an area of gardening that I've always been fascinated with, but never really been good at. I've, I, I currently have two plants that I have bonsai, which is very successful for me because I've killed about 18. Um, so my track record's not great, but he made me feel confident. <laughs> is, is he in the uh, Mr. Miyagi League? From Karate Kid, um, he could be. Yeah, he he probably could be. Oh yeah, yeah. Now uh, um, he should put on uh, classes. That's what I was thinking. We'll have to. We'll have to. If you're listening, Curtis, we'll have to uh, see if we can set up some classes here and have him um, educate some people, including our staff, because it's bonsai. It's just such a beautiful art form, you know, to take something that wants to be, you know, like some people will bonsai large juniper trees or oak trees. And if you were to let those go, like an Eastern red cedar wants to be 50 feet tall and, uh, you know, certain oak trees, you know, in, in their natural habitat can grow to be 80 feet tall. And then you bonsai and you keep them a foot tall and they look like just this miniature tree. It's fascinating, but there's a lot of work in it. It's not, there's not this easy um, thing necessarily. You got to make sure you're pruning the roots correctly. Um, Curtis was, was telling me, you know, you, you cut the tap root and you keep that middle root down if you want the plants to not get any taller. Um, and if you don't want the plant to necessarily get wider, then you got to, you know, meticulously prune the adventitious roots, those side roots, those ones that shoot out to the side. And so he was giving me some tips on how to prune the roots correctly to get a certain um, effect on the bonsai tree that, that you are trying to grow. He Very well, interesting. What you just said made absolutely no sense to me, and uh, it sounded like math. <laughs> but uh, I, I would have to see it, but I, I think that would be fascinating. And, uh, um, and really, that's one of those things that you have to see done, but it takes an incredible amount of patience. I think so. Yeah, there's um, the only way that I, I certainly didn't read about bonsai myself and feel like I could tackle it. I had to watch videos of, of people who have done it. And so, yes, I think with that sort of thing, because it's, it's even for a plant person like myself, it's what I love to do to to manipulate something in a way where it 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 does something different than what it naturally would do. 
I think does work better if you're able to see someone do it. So, Curtis, if you're listening, maybe we'll have to set up a bonsai class. Sounds good to me. To I, I would love as well. I would love to learn how to do bonsai. So, I, it's just such a fat. Anytime I see it, you know, there's um, um, a, a park up north, um, Anderson's Japanese Garden. Oh yeah, you've told me about that. Bon- oh, it's beautiful. Um, I've gone in summer, and it was great. Went in fall, even more beautiful. Nice, cool weather, and all those Japanese maples that are in fall color, stunning. But they've also had some really nice bonsai displays there, too. And it's just mind-blowing um, just what people can do. And, and then you read the tag, and you read the information on it, and you realize, oh, my God, this thing that's two feet tall and three feet wide is 88 years old. It just blows your mind. Um, how much time is spent into creating something that's literally this living work of art. Banzai, Daniel son. Banzai. So yes, Banzai. Yeah. All right. So um, what I'd like to do now is invite people to play the home version of Green Thumb from Hair Nursery. And you could go on to the Hair Nursery website. It's hairnursery.com, correct? Yep, hairnursery.com. And uh, we were going to finish up on on uh, going over some of the free design plans mm-hmm. that we have available to people um, with plants and, and everything. Um, you can get a, anywhere from uh, about 10 to 15 plants, depending on the design. And, and like I said, the plant is free, and it'll probably only cost you about 250 bucks plus a little bit of time to get it all done, and you'll have a beautiful garden. All right, so we'll let people do that, hairnursery.com. Go down. It's just near the top, land, free landscape designs. You can click on that. We'll come back to that, give you some time uh, to get out the board game um, for the home version. A uh, couple of things. What are the most popular questions going on right now? So I've had, uh, which now with uh, some of the rain that we've recently gotten, um, depending on where you're at, might not be as much of a of a problem now in the future, but with we did have a slew of rain not that long ago and then we went into a very very hot dry spell mm-hmm. and one thing that people have been asking about is is why is their ground their their uh, their grass turning brown mm-hmm. that's a very common question i've had several people ask in the last week um one person brought in um some grass as well that was kind of dry and crispy so some people, I think, are prone to think right off the bat that either it is a bug or a fungal infection. And I'm not saying that that isn't uh, a cause that might be affecting you, but in this sort of heat that we've been having, my first go-to is that it is likely going dormant. Many of the grasses that we grow in our area, um, Kentucky bluegrass, perennial ryegrass, uh, many types of fescue, whether it's a turf-type fescue or a creeping fescue, those are all cool-season turf grasses. And that means that they're going to thrive really well most of the year in the Midwest. But then in the heat of the summer, July, August, especially when there's not as much rain available, they start to go dormant. They just can't tolerate the heat. And so what happens is they just they, they stop producing um, or pushing nutrients up to the leaf blade, and they keep it all stored in their root system. And so what I'll tell people, if their turf is going brown um, and it's July or August, I'll say, hey, go and tug on it a little bit, give it a pull, 
And if it's resistant to you and doesn't just rip right out of the ground, um, then the roots are still active and alive and it's just dormant. So one of the ways that you can bring it back out of dormancy is to water regularly. If you don't want to destroy your water bill um, uh, or can completely raise it up on yourself, then just let it be. It's okay. Um, but while you have dormant turf and it's all brown, I don't recommend that you fertilize unless you're going to start meticulously watering again. Mow um, high, so mow high. Mow high. That's definitely going to be a huge help in this kind of heat that we've been having. Um, you know, many, many mower settings are on a three or four scale. I mean, there's four to five different height settings, and I usually recommend um, being on the uh, higher than half. You don't want, if you have four, um, measurements, uh, mow it on three um, or four. And I know that that might mean you have to mow a little bit more often, but honestly, uh, mowing a little bit more often is a heck of a lot uh, less expensive than having to replace your turf if, if you end up mowing too low, scalping it, causing it to go dormant um, prematurely, uh, and then it could start to die out. So that's that's just kind of one of the things that I've been talking to people about as far as how to make their grass healthy. I uh, I have my mower set on fifty four, and I have to mow every three hours. So it's uh, but it, it it looks green. Yeah. yeah. How how do you even work, Dan? I mean, pretty much <laughs> as soon as we're done, you got to go mow your yard. Oh yeah, I know. Uh, so <laughs> the second one is uh, you had a question about magnolia trees. Yes. Yeah. Just had um, I get this question um, every year. Um, and I've recently had this question. So uh, if one person has it, I know there's probably other people who have it. And I've worked at nurseries who end up having this problem as well. Um, I know it's something that we've even had to deal with here at Hair Nursery. So with magnolia trees, there is a specific type of insects, uh, bug, that will go after it. And it's called scale. And there's one that tends to be a little bit more vicious with your magnolia, um, kind of coining it the magnolia scale. And uh, it's a whitish um, kind of gray insect that literally wears a shield on its back, and that's why it's called scale. Um, and, and from a distance, it would look kind of like a weird pustule um, or cyst-like thing on your tree, especially when they're covered. They, they tend to congregate in groups um, during a heavy infestation. There might be uh, four, five, six of them kind of clumped together in one spot, looking like this little whitish, bumpy growth on your tree. Um, and so if you notice that, um, more, more than likely that's the scale right there. And spraying is very difficult because of that shield that they cover their bodies with. And they, they can literally kind of suction cup themselves to the bark. And underneath that shield is their actual body, which is a small for portion of what the actual, um, you know, size of the insect is. And from there, they're protected and they can start suckering um, and burrowing through uh, your, your branch and sucking the nutrients out of it. Um, so like I said, because of this shield-like uh, obstacle that they that they wear an obstacle uh, object that they kind of have attached to them spraying is very very difficult and it's one of the few times that i tend to uh recommend the systemic fertilizer um, or insecticide that we have 
uh, talked about before. And the systemics are absorbed. You water the tree with you. You, you can buy it. We have a tree and shrub um, liquid insect drench, and you dilute that into water, and then you water your tree with it. And depending on how big the tree is and how healthy it is, it'll fully absorb that any time between one and two months. Um, and which time afterwards, uh, it becomes kind of immune to chewing insects. So um, that's one of the things that works really well for the the scale is spraying is a nightmare. You'll have to spray very, 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 very uh, heavily, and you'll have to spray often. Um, but if you can just put the drench in, let the tree absorb it, then it becomes toxic, and chewing insects will eventually die. Nutrient suckers, bad band name. That's not a good band name. Uh, so it, it, will the tree recover? Yes, the tree can absolutely recover. Yeah, no problem with getting the tree to recover, um, especially if you if you attack if you attack it soon enough. Now, if by the time you come in and your whole tree is white and there's not a leaf on it, mm. um, you you might be able to get it to recover, um, but it's probably going to take several years. Now, if you just have a little bit on a few branches, no problem. Um, don't stress about that whatsoever. Um, so, you know, like I said, come in. Uh, you can spray if you have just a few. You can remove a limb if you need to, um, if it's really only on one branch. But usually this is the type of situation, especially with scale. I hate scale. It's one of uh, my least favorite insects to ever have to encounter because it's so difficult to get rid of. Truly the best thing, in my opinion, is to use the insect drench, the systemic and water your plant with it, and then it just becomes toxic to those insects. All right, we got about three minutes before we got about to take a break, but uh, a lot of people grow herbs. Uh, what happens if your basil plant has brown spots all over it? Yes, so this is one of those things. So there's other things that can cause brown spots or lesions on your on your uh, basil plants, but one of the more common ones, especially right now, um, is bacterial leaf spots. And you can know this um, by the fact that there's if there's no there's not going to be like any dusty material on it you can eliminate uh fungus from this if you're looking at your basil and you have brown spots on it check the underside of the leaf if you don't have like a gray powdery substance underneath your leaf then it's probably not fungal um and uh if the the other thing too is there's another type of fungus that can create brown lesions on your plants called fusarium wilt and this will cause the tips of your basil to get wilted and to kind of droop over. So if you're noticing that, then you have a fungus again. Now, if you're not noticing either one of those things that I just um, said and you just have brown spots on your basil and it's not looking healthy, that could be bacterial leaf spot. Now, there's no cure for this. It's a bacterial infection that's within the plant. Now, that doesn't necessarily make it toxic or poisonous to us, but it is unhealthy for the plant. Um, so once again, really the only thing you can do since you can't um, spray anything to prevent this or to control it is to just make sure that the plant is healthy. You can apply some organic fertilizer. Even in the heat, you can use organic fertilizer because it's low intensity. It's likely not going to burn your plants. Keep it well watered. Don't let it get super wilted in between waterings because the more stress it's under, the more likely it is um, to be affected by the bacterial infection. And you can prune out those uh, dead spots. I had to do this with my basil. Half of my basil, I was noticing bacterial wilt on. I cut that out. I dipped my pruners in a cleaner. Um, I used hydrogen peroxide to clean off my pruners so that I didn't pass that bacterial infection to another plant. 
Um, and now my basil's coming back. It's doing well. Now I'm having to pinch off the flowers off of it regularly um, because it wants to grow so happily. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, uh, an interesting question I wanted to ask you. You do not want your uh, herbs to flower, do you? No, yeah. The, uh, many herbs, once they start to flower, mint not so much. Mint has such a potent and powerful flavor anyway. Um, it's not the end of the world if some of your mints start to flower, but some of your more savory um, or sweeter herbs, uh, once they start to flower, what that can do is it can start making the, the plant taste astringent or bitter. Um, and so it's not that it makes the plant inedible, it's just if you're growing sweet basil and it has a big flower on it, and when you pick the basil leaf, it's not going to be as sweet anymore. It's going to be a much more powerful, different flavor. Um, and so if you pinch the flowers off, then that tends to keep the herb tasting the way that you expect that herb to taste. Uh, also, it can help those leaves get bigger, fatter, healthier. Um, flowers are expensive, and so if you break those flowers off, then those nutrients get pushed back into the foliage, which is what you want on an average herb. Yeah, and the one thing about 30 seconds, uh, uh, some of that fungal can happen if you overwater, if, there, if, you're, if your basil yes. doesn't have good drainage. Uh, sometimes it's better mm-hmm. to let it sag a little and then bring it back with some water than to water it too much. Uh, that also can right and to, overhead watering too. Yes, right, and we are always growing a legion of fans. Ethan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got all kind. Of, people are always coming in, and um, I mean, you you come into the store, and we're kind of figuring out what we want to talk about, and people will come up right to us and like the radio show. They recognize your voice. They recognize my voice. It's mm-hmm. a it's a nice thing. Ed. So thank you for everyone who's been listening, and and uh, we appreciate you. Well, uh, go to their website, hairnursery.com, if you haven't already. Click on Free Landscape Designs. Uh, Last week, we went over deer and rabbit-resistant gardens and then deep shade gardens. And I really like that because a lot of people don't think that they could get color from uh, in in shade. And I tell you right now, I'm I'm starting to really like my uh, shade garden because it's, it's... uh, it's easier to take care of almost. Uh, you know, you don't get any, uh, the, the, the plants don't get any pounding from the sun. And when you have a sun garden, uh, boy, you got to make sure you're watering out there or they can fade fast. So let's get into mm-hmm. butterfly and hummingbird gardens. People love butterflies and hummingbirds. And uh, one, mm-hmm. uh, one plant on the list is lilacs. And I'm like, well, lilacs oh, yeah. don't flower long, though, do they? No, but it's an early season nectar source. Mm. So even in in March and and April, even if it's kind of cool sometimes and there's other plants that aren't necessarily thriving um, or aren't available because it's still too cold for them to be, Lilacs are still out and blooming, and, and the pollinators, they're, they're up. They're, they need a, a food and a nectar source. And so lilac is a wonderful way to provide an early season nectar source for your pollinators. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's part of the perk of, of adding the lilac in there. Plus, it allows for you to have early color in your garden, too, so that you don't just have everything blooming at one time. Uh, and so include early season flowers like lilacs um, to any of your gardens just to kind of prolong your flowering season. Just so happens that this has a wonderful amount of nectar to it as well and smells really good. 
Yeah, I love that uh, 10-day period when it's blooming because the, you just open up the garage door and it's right next to my garage. You're like, ooh, I can smell that. Uh, ironweed. Mm-hmm. Ironweed. Yes, ironweed um, is, is just a really hardy perennial. So it does die back, unlike your lilac, which will still have kind of a woody presence over winter. Um, An ironweed is going to completely die back um, like a true perennial does, but it's a late season bloomer. So whereas the lilac is going to be your early season, providing that early amount of nectar, your ironweed will give you late summer and into early fall sometimes if it's really established. Um, So nice late season color, um, usually bright purple flowers on it. And it tends to not get bigger than two, two and a half feet tall and wide. So it doesn't overstay its welcome um, as far as uh, getting too big um, or mounding too heavily. So it's, it's a nice, compact, tight perennial that looks really good, but also has a good purpose to it as well. Hmm. Yeah, again, a, a favorite of the butterflies. Um, oh, but- my gosh. Yeah, you're going to get some painted ladies um, and some really beautiful, colorful moths that will come and and, uh, and take advantage of your ironweed. And it's a late-season bloomer, which I like. I always love late-season mm-hmm. bloomers. Uh, goldenrod. Now, this has got a very interesting shape. Yes. Um, now, the goldenrod that we sell is more of a... Um, uh, kind of a, a hybridized cultivar, um, but it is bred from the from the native, the wild goldenrod that exists. Um, you'll see goldenrod, such a hardy, sturdy plant. You'll see it along highways, along roads, um, in areas where you don't see many other plants thriving, goldenrod will. It's a very, very hardy plant. Um, it gets tall, expected to get four feet tall, give or take at least, could be even taller than that. So make sure you have the space for it. Um, but it is also a mid to late season flower, bright yellow colors, which really break up, I think, a pollinator garden. Uh, your mini pollinator gardens are full of purples, um, which is great. Um, p- purple is a, is a very attractive color to bees and butterflies. Um, but yellow, aesthetically for us, really kind of breaks that up, um, too. Um, but it's a wonderful plant for your uh, pollinators. They love it. There's loads of little flowers all over each one of the racines that those flower buds uh, go off of. Also, just kind of clarify, uh, goldenrod does get a bad rap for causing allergies, but it blooms at the same time as ragweed does. And so when people are saying, oh, goldenrod, I don't like that. When it starts to flower, my allergies get crazy. Well, more than likely, it's the ragweed that's blooming at the same time, which can usually grow in similar environments as goldenrod does that's causing your allergies to flare up. So goldenrod kind of has a bad rap there, but more than likely, it's not what's causing people's allergies to flare up. Very sturdy plant. Very sturdy plant. I love it. And the three we talked about are all perennials, right? These are perennial gardens? Correct. Yep. yep. Everything um, on these lists um, our, our design plans are all perennials. Um, so, yeah, no annuals included. These should be long-lasting gardens for you. Uh, hardy hibiscus. Um, and I, I love these flowers, but uh, there are so many different types of hib- uh, hibiscus. Which one is this one? So this one, whenever you see hardy hibiscus or you see it termed as perennial hibiscus, Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be your large dinner plate flower hibiscus, the big flowers that are six inch or bigger in diameter. 
So there, and it, it is very similar looking to the tropical hibiscus, the annual that you will find. The way you can tell the difference, well, usually um, tropical hibiscus is available to you far sooner, uh, anywhere from a month to two months before you will find perennial hibiscus available. Um, so that's usually um, a, a way to just to distinguish. Also, annual or tropical hibiscus has a much thicker, waxier leaf to it on average, whereas the hardy hibiscus or perennial hibiscus has a much more um, papery feeling leaf to it. Um, so that's kind of a big thing. But hardy hibiscus tends to not be available until end of May or June at the earliest because it doesn't start to wake up until the ground temperature starts to reach 60 degrees, give or take, and the average high is uh, well above 75. It loves the heat. So I always tell people, too, you know, if they come in in May and they're like, um, my hibiscus is dead, it's like, oh, no, 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 it's still asleep. Um, so you usually have to wait if you plant a perennial hibiscus. Uh, you might not see any signs of life on it until the end of June, potentially, but then it wakes up really quick. It grows insanely fast, and you get these stunning, massive flowers on it. Um, I mean, it can grow four, five, six feet um, in, in less than a month. That's how fast it grows once it finally wakes up. So it's a really nice plant to have. Late season color goes well into fall. There is, it looks like, hibiscus in a house, in, right in front of a house <clears throat> on Sheridan Road. And I wonder if that's the hardy hibiscus because it's there every it year. It probably is, yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. I love that one. Uh, also, too. My mom has two of them, and they're just wonderful. They're, they're, they're about as tall as you and I are. Wow. And just loaded with flowers. And do you have to cut it back? Yep, you want to cut it back to anywhere from... Um, about six to twelve inches above the ground, and it's not from it's not going to grow back from the stems that you cut back. It's going to grow back from the root system. So um, that that portion that you're kind of cutting back is kind of a little bit of a support mechanism for the new growth once it starts emerging before it starts to skyrocket. Mm -hmm. Salvia. Oh yeah, this is. This is doesn't salvia is not just necessarily for pollinator gardens. It's just, in my opinion, a staple plant for your garden. It has so many uses. It's great in sun. It's drought tolerant. It's deer and rabbit resistant because it's part of the mint family. Um, it's long season bloomer, so it tends to open up uh, late spring, um, early summer, and it'll bloom uh, well into late summer, early fall. Some varieties even bloom longer than that, um, well into fall. Uh, just a really hardy plant once established. Um, I, I really like salvia. You can get it in colors of uh, purples, different shades of purple, whites. You can get uh, some pink varieties, too. Uh, just a really, really sturdy plant. I, I can't uh, compliment salvia enough. It's one of those plants that I also will talk to people about for low-maintenance gardening, people who just aren't going to be out there meticulously caring for their, for their um, plant regularly. So I tend to recommend salvia for being one of those plants. It's not usually hit by too many pests or diseases. It can be drought tolerant once established. And uh, unless you're planting it in full shade, which it, it would probably not thrive too well in, um, it's it's going to be a stunning plant and a performer wherever you plant it. Yeah, and it goes pretty much most of the year. Um, if you're wondering, if you want to play along and you're just tuning in, you could go to the Hair Nursery 
uh, page, hairnursery.com, and click on free landscape designs. And we're going over um, what what pollinators love. And so uh, mm -hmm. we're running down the list. Uh, help me with the next one. Is it Anis Hysop? Hyssop, yep, yep, hyssop. Anis Hyssop. Um, so Hyssop is more is the more common name for it. So Hyssop, or um, it's still also referred to as its botanical name, Agastache. Um, but uh, Hyssop is also in the mint family, very closely related to Salvia, um, and uh, also has herbal qualities like, uh, you know, like the Salvia, um, just because of the fact that it's in the mint family. But it is... Uh, it's a wonderful pollinator plant. It doesn't, in my uh, opinion, I know some of the tags and I've seen some people with some longer lasting hyssop. It's not going to necessarily last as long as far as flower time um, in as salvia can. I also don't find it to bloom as prolifically as salvia can, but it's a great addition because the flower shape is a little bit different and you can usually get some more blue tones in a hyssop. That's why I tend to be attracted to it. I planted hyssop. I do like hyssop. Um, what it does not like, though, is wet areas. Um, I've had uh, hyssop die in too moist of areas, and I've had hyssop not make it in too sunny of uh, or too dry of location. So you kind of need that Goldilocks zone um, for hyssop. And once again, this is just my opinion. I'm sure there's plenty of people um, who are listening who have had different success rates with hyssop. Um, but it is still a, a great plant for nectar. Pollinators love it. If you see it in our sales yard, you're more than likely going to see honeybees and bumblebees and butterflies all over the plant. So uh, while it can be a little bit more um, melodramatic than, say, your uh, cat mint or your salvia would be, it is still great a great mint family perennial to add to your garden if you want to attract pollinators. Yeah, I like the spike-shaped flower. Yes, yes, and it's and it's easy for pollinators. You know, it's easy for if you look at our picture. Um, uh, if you're if you're on our website, you see a monarch sitting right on top of the flower. It's like this nice little spike landing pad that's full of food and nutrition for the plant. So it is great for them. Got about four minutes left. We can get in a couple more Russian sage. You always like this. Oh man. This one, I love Russian sage. I love Russian sage because once it's in the ground, that's, that's it. You're, you're done. You don't have to worry about it. This is why it's a common plant for landscapers to use around medians and cities or parking lots because it can take serious neglect and punishment. Um, I'm not saying go, go out there and slap your plant around and call it names, but it could take it if, if you did. Um, it, it's, it's very, very hardy. It's drought tolerant. It provides long season of colors. It's got a very fragrant foliage to it. Um, and the pollinators, once again, love it. it. It truly is a stunning summer performer. And there's new, there's new varieties um, that are dwarf, like denim and lace, is one of the newer varieties, I think, by proven winners. That doesn't get as big and leggy. Traditional Russian sage used to get three, four feet, even bigger, um, and eventually you could get kind of woody and start to look rather unattractive. But some of the newer varieties stay under three feet, much more compact, don't get nearly as unruly, but yet you still get the long-season flower color. The pollinators adore it, and it's insanely drought-tolerant. 
And finally, milkweed, which monarch caterpillars and butterflies love. Yes, you have to have. Now, if you're going to have a, a true butterfly garden, I really feel like you have to have milkweed somewhere in there because milkweed is the host plant for monarchs. It is the only plant that monarchs can eat. Um, their larvae can eat. So while they can get nectar, the butterfly, the adult form, can pull nectar from every other plant that we've talked about, and that energizes it because they're flying around all the time, and that's very expensive. Um, so they essentially are just living off of sugar water. Um, but in order for them to continue to thrive, they have to have milkweed. Um, and the thing is, is that milkweed is rather toxic to other types of insects or bugs because of this milky substance that excretes out of it um, if you damage it. It's a very disgusting taste, um, and it makes the monarch uh, larva actually toxic as well, which is why birds tend to not go after it too often. Mm -hmm. um, but for, what, for whatever reason, somehow this critter has evolved to be able to eat this plant, which is also how it defends itself. It eats a toxic plant, and it makes itself toxic. Now, when I say toxic, I don't want people to be scared, like, oh, my gosh, I have milkweed all over the place. My animals are going to get into it. Don't stress about that. If your animals haven't eaten milkweed before, they're not going to just start eating milkweed. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's you know kind of goes against their their genetic to go after that plant, um, but it is uh, still a stunning flowering performer um, that's going to bloom all summer long. And there's different varieties of milkweed. You can get common milkweed, which could you know slowly take over. You can get swamp milkweed, which is also kind of invasive. But there's another milkweed um, just called uh, tuberosa or perennial milkweed, which has a bright orange flower, which is what we have listed here um, on the design. Doesn't get overwhelmingly large, uh, but is a stunning performer. Aesthetically looks great, but also knowing that it's providing not only a nectar source for the adult, but a food source um, for the larva. So you can go on the website and get ideas. They actually have a garden plan uh, for all of these uh, butterfly and hummingbird uh, uh, plants. And, and they'll give you an idea of how the size is and what's the best way to lay them out if you go on hairnursery.com. Uh, all right. So uh, maybe next week we'll talk about the final one. Uh, that we didn't get to, and that is uh, drought-tolerant gardens. Uh, here mm -hmm. at Nursery, open every day except Sunday, 8 to 6, for Ethan Wise. Yep. I'm Dan DiOrio. Thanks for listening to Green Thumb from Hair Nursery on WMBD.